Have you heard about the Leaning Tower of San Francisco? Have you read about this? Yesterday they got some violation uh, notices from, uh, I guess, the city or county of San Francisco uh, because they did some repairs without uh, getting permits. But that's kind of the least of the problems here because this brand new 58-story luxury apartment uh, development in San Francisco has sunk, they say settled, but we laymen say sunk, a little more than anticipated. It's sunk about 16 inches, and, uh, and it's leaning a couple of inches. And uh, so, I mean, uh, it, it's just kind of amazing that one lady discovered this uh, when she was practicing her putting and there was quite a slope to the green. The, the ball just kept kind of rolling into one corner of the apartment. And uh, it turns out that um, they didn't sink the, the foundation quite low enough. They needed really to go all the way down to bedrock, but that was too expensive. It, was, uh, it would have raised the price of luxury apartments, which I'm still wrestling with. I don't know how you've figure raising the price of a luxury apartment in San Francisco, but all of that aside, it was too expensive to sink the foundation all the way to bedrock. And so it is sitting on less solid rock than it should be, and uh, it is sinking and leaning. Um, and what makes it a little bit worse is that it seems the developer and the city of San Francisco knew that it was sinking more than anticipated, but they didn't tell anybody about that before they started selling and occupying and all of that kind of stuff. So I figure this is just made to order as a sermon illustration uh, it's for what we're going to talk about this morning which is, how do you assure people that you're telling them the truth? How do you give assurance to the people around you? How do you convince them that you're saying things that are true, that, uh, that you're not lying to them or that you're not lying to yourself? How can you be, convince people uh, that you are trustworthy? We're talking about the power of words here, and uh, we're, we're getting the wisdom of God from the book of Proverbs about our speech, how we talk, and uh, how we uh, conduct ourselves and what we say. And this morning, we come to this very basic thing that is essential for all of our relationships. It's essential for all of society. You can't have a functioning society without this one thing, that people are assured that you are telling the truth. If we're always second-guessing everything that everybody says, then how can you conduct a healthy relationship? Well, the answer is you can't. Your life is dominated by suspicion, always wondering who is, is trying to pull a fast one on you. Um, and what we're realizing as a society today 
is that our whole society is a leaning tower. Every contract that is made, every statement that is made publicly and privately, everything that goes out in the media, everything our leaders say, not just from Washington, but state government, city, county government, it's all now in that category of, I wonder what they're not telling us. I wonder what they're withholding. I wonder if this is really true. Uh, And we're now living in a society where the tower is built, it is occupied, but it's sinking because our relationships have no foundation in personal integrity, honesty, and truthfulness. So we're trying to make this work as a society, trying to live in such a way that we can have relationships and have a good life together and have a prosperous society, conduct business, make transactions without that bedrock assurance that what people are saying is actually true. It's not going so well. This structure that we are living in, our culture, our society, is sinking because it is not grounded in personal integrity. So one of the things that uh, we have to recover if we are to continue this project that we are working on as a church of speaking wisely, one of the things we've got to recover is that sense of personal integrity, honesty, the, the ability to speak the truth in a straight way and be people of our word. Um, as we talk about this, let's review uh, some of the things that we've seen in this series so far. Speaking wisely is not about your tone of voice. It's not about your body language. Speaking wisely is not about finding acceptable phrases to say to people. It's not about strategy or tactics or relational psychology or any of those things. Speaking wisely goes back to the bedrock of the fear of God. We speak the truth to each other because we have the word of truth from God in our hearts. We treasure it. We fear God that what he says is actually true without error and that when we treasure it and mold our lives around it, that we become better and wiser people. We have that sense of accountability to God, that we are not free to just make up our own reality and say whatever we want. There is a God who is listening carefully to all that we say, and we are accountable to him. We have also found that wise speaking comes out of a human legacy as well, where we find that we have teachers, parents, grandparents, uh, people in our lives who have guided us in the wisdom of God, in how to speak, how to conduct ourselves. And when we come to speak, we, we speak wisely when we're regarding ourselves like stewards of that legacy. We have received it. It does not belong to us. Our job is to pass it on intact, better indeed than we found it. 
And so when we speak out of a submitted heart to God, a submitted heart to our human guides, we are speaking wisely. And uh, last time we saw that when we speak this way, we become a, a source of blessing, nourishment to the people around us. When we speak out of rebellion, hard-heartedness, without the fear of God, and in a kind of contempt for our human guides, when we speak in those ways, we actually become a source not of blessing, but of cursing to the people around us. Not a source of nourishment, but a source of poison. And so there is a, a stark divide uh, in the way that we go here, uh, in, in the ways that are open before us, and we have to make a choice. The choice about whether to speak the truth to each other is fundamentally a choice of whether we are going to fear God or not, whether we are going to regard ourselves as accountable to God and to each other or not. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, everybody wants to assure other people that we are honest, and so we telegraph that. We put up big signs that we are trustworthy. We do it with our tone of voice. We do it with our body language. We, we try to portray ourselves as trustworthy people so that people will believe what we say. The problem is that we've got a lot more emphasis on salesmanship than on the essence of what honesty is and on the essence of what integrity is at its heart. So before we dive into the scripture this morning, let me give you what I believe the scripture teaches is the essence of honesty. This is honesty at its heart. Can you distinguish between your perceptions and facts? Let me unpack that for a moment. If you can distinguish the difference between what you perceive, what you think, what you feel, your opinion about issues, if you can distinguish between your perceptions and fact, then you've got a basis of honesty. That means that when you speak to people about an issue in your life, maybe a, a challenge or a conflict, you go into that conversation kind of mentally prepared. My perceptions might be off. My opinion might not be right because there's a difference between what I feel, what I perceive, and facts. So I'm going to go into this conversation looking for what are the facts I'm not going to go into this conversation looking for how my perceptions can prevail and dominate the other people. There's a big difference of approach there. So if we look at some of the things that we hate about our political discourse right now and, and at all the time, it's basically this, this stubborn refusal to deal with the fact that there is reality beyond your opinion, your ideology, your perception. There is reality beyond your interest group. There is a reality that we all need to come together and stand on and solve problems on. This is one of the most basic things that is annoying 
to say the least, about the political season. Because it's all perception, it's all spin, it's, it's all communication around those kinds of things. This is what annoys us about marketing and sales. When you, you just want to buy the best product that you're looking for, whatever it is, you just want to make a, a clear, right decision that has some common sense behind it, but all you're getting is perception, spin, and salesmanship, and you have to weed through all of that to get to the reality. And we do this in personal relationships. We try to dominate each other by making the case for our perception of what is happening or what needs to happen instead of setting those opinions aside and seeking what is actually true and real in the situation. So this is kind of the basic idea of honesty and integrity in the scriptures. We're going to see this uh, in uh, five characteristics from our text this morning. And then we're going to look at the adjustments that we need to make to our attitude, our focus, and our faith in order to speak truthfully. And they all really center on this skill, this life discipline of distinguishing between what I perceive and what is real. In other words, assuring people that you're telling the truth is not a matter of salesmanship. It's a matter of self-control. We get the self-control, we will speak the truth, or we will learn to speak the truth. But if all we're concerned about is selling our point of view or perceptions, honesty is going to go right out the window. So let's look at uh, some of the characteristics of honesty, integrity, true speech in Proverbs chapter 12, verses 17 to 22, part of a larger passage about the tongue uh, in which uh, a person is satisfied with good, verse 14, from the fruit of his mouth. What you say contributes to the good in your relationships, in your business, in your work. And as a key part of this, the issue of truthfulness comes right to the heart of it at verse 17. First characteristic of, some, of, of speaking the truth is, drum roll please, honesty. Uh, here's the proverb. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence, but a false witness utters Deceit. This is one of those proverbs where you read it and you say, yeah, how is this helpful? How do, you, how do you tell the difference between the honest witness and the false witness? Isn't that the whole problem? This proverb, it doesn't really help me tell the difference. Well, it, it helps us tell the difference in ourselves. Look at verse 17 very closely. You may have a footnote or a translation note by the word speaks. Whoever speaks the truth gives honest evidence. A, a more literal translation of that word speaks is breathes out. Whoever 
exhales truth, gives honest evidence. Now, what that says to me as I ponder this proverb is, this honest witness is just saying what he or she saw as he or she saw it without drawing any conclusions. And in that sense, there's not a lot of of, um, salesmanship here. There's not a lot of complexity or sophistication. They're not trying to sell themselves or a certain point of view. They're just saying what they saw. This is what I saw, and, and here's how it went down from my point of view. If, uh, we're, if we take our minds to a courtroom, we think about the situation of a witness sworn to tell the truth, and what else? The whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So we're going to tell the truth. We're going to tell all of it. And we're not going to mix the truth with other stuff that we make up, including perceptions or conclusions. What do we think of a witness who uh, uh, takes the oath and takes the stand and then sits down and uh, proceeds to give a lot of conclusions under questioning? That is not going to be admissible as honest evidence. Why? Because that witness is jumping the gun. That witness is, trying, is supposed to help the court draw a right and just conclusion. The job of the witness is simply to say what he or she saw at that moment, not to tell the court what conclusion it ought to reach. So when, whenever we see, I mean, you've seen uh, all of the, the crime shows, when, when the witness tries to give a conclusion or the lawyer tries to coax a conclusion from the witness, The gavel comes down, and we say, we're mixing perception and fact here. What we want is for you to say what you saw. The witness is just supposed to breathe out, exhale truth, separating out fact from perception. And uh, whoever does that is giving honest evidence, good, reliable evidence. But a false witness utters deceit. So you contrast that picture of somebody who's just kind of saying what they saw in a very simple way, not burdened with the necessity of selling the court on a certain conclusion. The false witness has a completely different agenda. When the false witness takes the stand, that witness has to lead the court to a certain conclusion, doesn't he? Because there's something at stake in, uh, in his testimony. Maybe his own skin. Maybe his own complicity in a crime. Or maybe it's his desire that a certain person get blamed for a crime. Who knows what the agenda is. But the false witness is sitting there calculating what to say by what he thinks or she thinks the best impact is going to be. They're not breathing out truth. They're calculating truth and then in a very studied and careful way giving you only what you need to hear to come to the right conclusion. What Solomon is pointing out here is that there is premeditation, spin, sophistication, and calculation in lying. 
And the more of that calculation we have, what impact is this going to have if I say this? Maybe I would have a better impact if I said this. The more of that calculation you've got, the more dishonest it's going to get. And this is what Solomon is pointing out to us, saying, look, say what you saw. Be simple. Keep it factual. A lot of times in our relationships, we want to exert influence or pressure in order to get our way. And that pushes us to exaggerate, to minimize. It pushes us to do all kinds of things that calculated in a calculated fashion shade and warp the truth so that the picture somebody sees is just not accurate. And uh, because they get a wrong picture, we think it will lead them to the right conclusion. Uh, Solomon is saying, simple honesty, breathing out the truth, separating out what you perceive from what is factual is at the heart of the characteristics of truthful speaking. It's simple, not calculated. Here's another uh, characteristic. Verse 18. Speech that has integrity and honesty is healthy. It brings healing. Here's what the proverb says. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now let's think about that. This is interesting. Because on the one hand, you have someone who is speaking and with every word they say, they're doing damage. They're, they're taking a chunk out of somebody else. And they are uh, doing harm. And, and the more they talk, the more the person they're talking to bleeds out and is wounded and in pain. But on the other hand, you have another person who is speaking, and the more they speak, the more those gashes are stitched up, and the wounds have a balm put on them. And the more the person uh, uh, sees their wounds healed, bound up, and their strength return. So there are two diametrically opposed routes here. One goes one way, the other goes the opposite direction. What separates out the two? Rash words versus wise words. What's a rash statement? Well, when I think about statements that I make that are rash, they all have something in common. They all have in common that I ran into a situation with a perception an opinion, a judgment, and I didn't pause and ask the question, is my perception true? Have you ever done that? You've probably never done this. <laughs> but I have. And so you come out with this rash statement, and you see immediately this person is wounded by what I said, by the assumption I made, by the perception I had, and I can't take it back because I just showed that I perceive this person in this way. And so the other person is, is there bleeding 
because of an unjust statement that I made. And it all could have been retrieved, prevented, if I had simply asked the question, is my perception true? Beloved, everything in this society is telling you to do the opposite of what Solomon is telling you to do. Everything in this society is teaching you your perceptions are right. Say what you feel. Be true to yourself. Take your point of view and make it the dominant point of view in the situation. Stick up for yourself. And I'm not saying that, uh, that this proverb or the teachings of Scripture mean that we should not defend our point of view when we have good reason to. But this proverb is saying very clearly, if you don't ask this question about whether your perception is factual and is actually true, you're going to walk into a statement, into a situation, and your statements are going to be like sword thrusts, and you're going to leave people bleeding. And the reason this is unjust is that it is wrong to state perceptions at people without their being grounded in facts. How do you like it when someone comes at you with accusations before asking questions? I don't like it. I hate it. It's hurtful. And so there's an injustice there. Uh, we might put it a little bit differently. A word spoken is an action. Can't be retrieved. A word spoken is not idle. It is an action that you take. And you can apologize having taken that action. You can repent in future actions uh, having to do with words. But the action you took and the impact it had is a done deal. And so this is saying rash words are like sword thrusts. And uh, this is not necessarily bombastic people doing this uh, who are just by their personality kind of abrasive and, and, and kind of out there and, and mean and, and all of that kind of stuff. It's not just those people. Some of the, the most rash statements I have ever heard have been uttered in a quiet, sweet tone that made me sick. Because it was so unjust, either toward me or toward someone that I, I'm, I'm in their corner, and I want I want them to, to be vindicated against this sweet poisonous talk. So rash statements, basically, you could sum it up this way: if you live in your own head, you're going to make rash statements. If you understand that in order to get to the truth, you have to open the doors and windows and you have to go outside your own head and you have to interact with reality. And you have to come to grips with the fact that reality may not and probably does not match what is in your head. If you're willing to do that, life's going to go well. It really is. Because the words of the wise come out of that kind of reflection 
where, yeah, in, in my very narrow perspective, this situation looks like this. But I'm going to get out of my own headspace and I'm going to walk out the door and I'm going to see what is real outside there. I'm going to investigate it and I'm going to test and see whether my perceptions are correct. And once you do that, then you come to someone in a conflict or in a, a business transaction and you find yourself saying things that are true, factual, reliable, where you're building common ground with the other person. And that's healing. That's a restoring thing. That's a unifying thing. Honesty and integrity in that way uh, is a powerful thing. Rashness is the leaning tower of San Francisco. It's built. The units are all sold. It's occupied. But the foundation... It was just too expensive to sink it down to bedrock. What we've got is good enough. It'll work. It'll stay up. It's not truth, friends. And is it any wonder that our personal relationships are in a constant turmoil, if they are, if we're trying to inhabit a, a leaning tower of communication where it's not grounded in things that are true, but just one rash statement after another. Third characteristic of truthfulness. Verse 19. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. But what's the whole problem with the leaning tower of San Francisco, well, the problem is a skyscraper 58 stories tall is supposed to endure. It's kind of supposed to stay up, right? If it is but for a moment, because it wasn't sunk onto bedrock and cannot endure, that's not just, oh well, that's not just oops, that's dead people. That's loss of life. And so when, when we talk about truthfulness and really sinking our words down to the bedrock of what is real, when, we, when we're talking about that, we're talking about the essence of whether our relationships will endure, whether our life will continue to flourish, whether our reputation will endure. These things matter. Um, if you think about people in your life, the tricksters, the game players, the relational salesmen and manipulators, where are they now? They're all gone. They're off selling somebody else on whatever it is that they're doing. But they're not in your life anymore. It, it could not endure because the, there was no truthfulness their statements, their, their dealings with you were not sunk onto the bedrock of reality. And so what we find here, this observation that Solomon makes, is that truthful lips have this characteristic of being enduring. You go back to them in 10 years, that person 
who is honest and straightforward in their statements is still around, still doing what they're supposed to be doing, still hard at work, still being productive, still being a blessing to the people around them. Even when trouble hits and, and they, they run into a storm or they have difficulty, they will weather it. Because when that earthquake strikes, the building that is founded and built on bedrock is going to last through the earthquake. And so that's what he's saying here. Truthfulness and the, the incentive to be truthful is the enduring, lasting quality of it. Listen. If you're trying to found a marriage on a false presentation of yourself or on a false picture of the person you are marrying, that marriage will have trouble enduring. In fact, the only way it will endure is when we get outside our own headspace and deal with the reality of who I am and who you are. That's the way a marriage endures. Marriages do not endure founded on illusions. They endure founded on truth. How do marriages heal? Because they're founded on truth and faithfulness in, in what we say, not rashness. All of these qualities come together to make a, a lasting, enduring marriage. Think about your friendships. The friendships that endure are those that are founded on a straightforward, simple honesty with one another. If you don't have that, that friendship is not going to endure. This is the kind of thing that uh, Solomon is pointing out. So let me pause here and say, how should we use these kinds of statements? We've got these three characteristics. What are you supposed to do with them? Well, one aspect of this is to say, the way I talk really isn't like this. So I'm going to learn how to talk in a way that is a lot less calculation, a lot simpler. Just say what I know say, uh, and separate out uh, what I think from what the facts are. I'm going to learn that. But here's another way to use this. And this, this way to use these characteristics helps get around your illusions. I do this to myself. That's why I recommend it. How permanent really are your relationships? The people in your life, are they enduring? Are your relationships solid? Um, when you go into that conversation, do your words in fact leave the other person healed or bleeding? Which, which is it? If you can step outside your headspace and look at the impact that you're actually having, then you can go back inside your head and say, you know, I think I'm doing something wrong here. Because if I had approached this correctly, that person would not be lying there lacerated and bleeding out like this. Clearly, 
there's something I needed to do differently. Um, so the way I use these things is in reviewing uh, my past uh, decisions and actions. I just say, what were the results really? Was healing really the result? And if it wasn't, what do I need to own as part of that process so that I can turn from that and speak more wisely the next time? So a couple of different uses for these characteristics. Fourth characteristic. Look at verse 20. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil. But those who plan peace have joy. Isn't that interesting? In the heart of someone who is devising evil, there's deceit. In the heart of the person who is planning peace, there's joy. Two different hearts. And this, uh, this proverb, like all proverbs, is a bit of a puzzle. And, and we have to think about what is a little bit strange about this. You would expect it to say something like, deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have integrity or honesty. That's what you would expect it to say. But that last word, joy, kind of a curveball. Question. What are you actually planning? What are your designs for your life? What are you planning for your relationships? Well, I'm, I'm not planning anything. Okay, well, have a nice day. But I think you are. I think we have different levels of thinking about our relationships. And we're always thinking about the future and what the future might look like. That's planning. So in the future of your relationships, what are your designs? If you hold them up against the law of God, are those designs righteous or evil? Are they in line with the law of God and how we are to treat people, or are they looking to skirt those laws in some way, get around them somehow? Are, are we looking for a loophole here and a little bit of, oh, that was cultural and it's for then, it's not for now, there? Is, is, is that the kind of thinking that we have? One of the things that Solomon is saying here is, Honest people, their honesty starts deep in their heart, their plans for the future. If we are devising a future that is contrary to the law of God, it's very simple. There is deceit in your heart. If we are planning peace, what, is, what would that mean? That would mean we're planning, we're devising a way that two people who are maybe at loggerheads, me and another person, we're going to have a meeting of the minds and we're going to come to agreement. How is that really going to work? Well, it's going to have to work by opening up 
being respectful, being wise, saying the things that lead to healing, not doing the sword thrust way of talking, but doing the wise way of talking that, that doesn't leave people lacerated but leaves them healed. Okay, so the, if that's what we're planning, then the future we have in mind is a future full of joy because people are brought together and united in reality, not deceived, not hoodwinked, not manipulated, not pressured, not bullied. All of those kinds of things are at play here. So um, you've put it very simply, you want peace? You have to have candor, straight talk, straight statements about things that are real. And candor does not put on a mask and then hope that nobody finds out there's an agenda behind the mask. Candor just takes the mask off and says, here's what I think, here's what I see, and here's what I know to be real. That's how peace happens between people. Um, we're going to be talking more about this in, in a few weeks. Um, so there's a fourth characteristic that honesty, integrity, true speech is peaceable. So this is quite an interesting list here. Honesty has the characteristic of straightforward truthfulness, simplicity, we'll call that honesty. It has the characteristic of being healing not rash. It has the characteristic of being enduring. It will last because it's built on a solid foundation. And uh, honesty has this characteristic of being peaceable, of admitting my perceptions are not the final word on reality. Reality is the final word on reality. By the way, a great conversation to have is where you honestly lay out what you're feeling to a trusted person, even when you know what I'm feeling is off, but this is what I'm feeling. I love those conversations. I don't have any problem with somebody uh, really saying very clearly, here are my perceptions and this is how the world looks from inside my head right now. That person is not saying to me, this is reality. This is who you are. This is what is happening in this situation. No, that person is just saying, my feelings are intense and this is the way the world looks from inside my head right now. No problem with that because it's a kind of truthfulness where it becomes lacerating where it becomes those rash sword thrusts is when we start saying, this is who you are, this is what you've done, this is what I think, and this is what I think about you, and it's just accusations. So you can share perceptions. That's not rash, but it's that back to that bedrock distinction. There's a difference between what I think and feel and reality, truth, fact. Last characteristic, look at verses 21 and 22. I'm taking these two together because 
verse 21 makes an observation and verse 22 gives the reason or the, the foundation for that observation. Verse 21, no ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. And we look at that and we say, oh, I must not be very righteous because a lot of bad things happen to me. Well, in Solomon's frame of reference here, the, in the world of Proverbs, the bad things that happen are not the end of the story. The bad things that happen are plot twists. And the question is, how does the story continue? Good things happen to wicked people in the book of Proverbs. Sometimes the dishonest people are making a headway and the honest people are losing. Sometimes the sinners are in power and, and Solomon says when that happens, the righteous are in mourning. Okay, so this stuff happens. But the question is, given that plot twist, how does the rest of it work out? What's the end of the movie look like? And what Solomon is saying here is, no matter what the plot twists are, no ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are full of trouble. By the time you get to the end of the movie for the wicked person, there is no redemption, there is no restoration, there is no healing, there is just blood on the floor, and that's what you've got on your conscience and in your soul. For the righteous, for those, and we're going to define what that is in the next verse, because I think it may not be what we think it is, nevertheless. For the righteous, the end of their movie is redemption, restoration, healing. If there was blood on the floor, it's mopped up, and there is order restored to life. Now, you might be in the position of saying in response to verse 21, Solomon, how can you possibly think that? That sounds way too optimistic. No, he's got a reason why he thinks this, and it's verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who act faithfully are his delight. Think about that. Look out into the world at everything that, that nauseates you about the way our society is going and lies being told on every side. This verse says something that is unalterable. It is true for all time, eternally. Lying lips. Notice how personal that is. Notice how personal that is, both on the receiving end and from the point of view of someone looking out. In other words, how personal it is if I have lying lips, my lips, or if I'm looking at a situation and seeing that this person 
owns lips that lie. This verse 22 is personal. Lying lips are an abomination to God. Think about that. The Lord of the universe, the creator, looks at lies and wants to hold his nose because the stench is that bad. Why does the Lord hate it so much? Because of all of the lacerations of rash statements and all of the bleeding people who have been lied about and lied to. He looks at all of the people, the, the people who have lost out financially because they believed a liar or people um, who uh, lost their sense of well-being because they trusted uh, a ruler or a, a lawyer or someone uh, in a position of authority, a policeman, uh, a city council person, whoever it may be. They trusted someone and it turned out they trusted lies. If you're in that situation, the Lord looks at that and says, this is hateful. It stinks. When this comes up to my nostrils, I want to puke. That's an abomination. But those who act faithfully are his delight. I love this time of year because of pumpkin and cinnamon in people's kitchens. Coming out of the, the, the oven, cinnamon rolls, pumpkin pie, all of this wonderful baked stuff. Why do we love that? Because we walk in and the smell hits you, the, the aroma hits you and you just go, oh, yeah, that's what I've been waiting for for 10 months. And uh, it's finally come around again. We're there. The holiday. It's, it's wonderful. It's delightful. People who act faithfully in relation to one another. What does that mean? Their words bring healing. They are not rash. They separate out their perceptions from reality. And so what they say endures and their relationships endure because they are exhibiting that loyalty. When the Lord looks at that, there is an aroma to it and it's delightful. He loves it. So, verse 21, no ill befalls the righteous. Why, Solomon? Because the Lord of the universe is watching over those people. Are you paying a price today because you told the truth? I know how that hurts. I know how it, it, it comes out of your hide sometimes when you tell the truth to your own cost or you keep a promise to your own cost and you bear that cost. What gets me through those times is the knowledge that the Lord loves faithfulness. He loves it. It is something that delights him and he watches over it. And so who controls the outcome of the movie 
Who is the one who takes all of the plot twists and turns them toward the perfect outworking of his will? It's God. So a final characteristic of telling the truth is just this very simple reality that the Lord is sovereign and providential over all people, all events. And if we do his things, his way, and we exhibit that faithfulness, he watches out for us. And I can tell you from a position of dire vulnerability at times when I have wondered whether this is going to really work out or whether this time they're actually going to get me. God is faithful. And he watches over us as we are faithful to the people around us and truthful. He loves it. This is not about earning salvation. This is about the outworking of God's work and will in our lives. And he loves his work in our lives. He loves the fact that we become more loyal, more faithful, more mature in the ability to separate our perceptions from reality. He loves that because he's doing it in us. So he watches over it. So three adjustments that we need to make. And by now we can go through these uh, fairly quickly. First one is a matter of attitude. When we go into a situation of conflict or difficulty, is our attitude that our position needs to dominate. My opinion is right. My principle is right. My perception is right. And the other guy, he just needs a knuckle under. Is, is this our attitude going into a situation? I can guarantee you, the fear of God, one, will be the first casualty in your own heart. Because once you've decided my perception is right and nothing will correct it, there is no teaching that I will receive about what I am thinking and feeling right now. I am not open to correction. If that's the attitude, then it's just guaranteed. It's open and shut. God can't get through because we switched off that channel. The fear of God is the first casualty. The second casualty, therefore, is truth. If your perception is right, then it's only right that you should dominate. And that means you've got to do whatever it takes, right? If it means bullying, flattering, coaxing, Shading the truth here, exaggerating over here, minimizing over here. Whatever you can do to get the advantage in that situation, well, that's what you've got to do, because you're right. I've never met a person who was wrong in a conflict, ever. I've met lots of people who will uh, preface what they say with, Lord love them, or bless their heart, or something like that, but you know what's coming. What's coming is total slander, right? And uh, so there, I've never met anyone in a conflict who was wrong. 
I've only met people who have taken a look at, at, at a conflict and said, something is wrong, and I am included in that. So let's drop the conflict, and let's have a meeting of the mind. Let's think our way down to a foundation of bedrock truth. Let's get it all the way down there, and then it will be, uh, we will be unified, healed, we've got a way forward. What we're really saying here is, how precious is truth to you? Truth is precious to God, and it's not an abstract thing to God, because it is his own character. He is truth. So it's precious to him. Any abuse of truth is literally flying in the face of God. Because that is his nature. So what I try to do is get my, my uh, attitude straight about what is most important. The most important thing is truth. There's always a way forward with truth. Always. Grace loves truth. But you can't get grace through lies. It's just not possible. Grace doesn't receive on that channel. So we, we have to adjust our attitude toward what is valuable. I think we also need to adjust our focus. When I am on the warpath about an issue, my focus is on people and how wrong they are and what they need to do to change. When my attitude is right and what I value is the precious commodity of truth, then my focus shifts. I, my focus shifts off the person and onto the issue, the problem, the challenge, the question. And once that shift of focus happens, then it's not so personal anymore. And then we can just talk about where is bedrock down here? How far down do we have to, to excavate before we actually hit what is real in this situation? Um, so uh, speaking truthfully requires a, a shift of attitude. It requires a shift of focus before you ever really even say anything. And thirdly, it requires an adjustment of faith. God is either in control or he is not. If God is not in control, then by all means, sell yourself. Take control. Do what you have to do to get what you want. Say whatever it takes. Because if God isn't in control, then you have to look out for number one. And no one else will. See how a whole philosophy of life flows just from one simple thing. God is not on the throne. He's not in control. If God is in control, and if he loves the aroma of faithfulness in his people, if he's baking that into our character, and he loves how his household smells, when that work is going forward. And if he's in control, then you can trust him and tell the truth. 
You can trust him to watch over you. You can trust him to provide when the truth is coming out of your hide. You can trust him to protect you. You can trust him with all of those things. Really, we end where we started this morning. Your concept of telling the truth or of personal integrity or honesty, it really goes back to who you think God is. If he's in control, you speak one way. If he's not in control, you speak a totally different way. Or to put this differently, truthfulness is not a matter of salesmanship. Assuring other people that you are telling them the straight story is not a matter of your ability to be persuasive. Truthfulness starts with self-control, which means that the wisdom of truthfulness starts where all wisdom starts, with the fear of the Lord. Two questions to help uh, evaluate this issue. And just very quickly, um, what is my focus in speaking to others? This is one of those moments where I'm asking you to get out of your headspace and turn around and look at the actions you take, the words you say. Look at those things from the outside in. What is your focus in speaking to others? Is it the issue or is it the person? If it's the person, look out. If it's the issue, then you're going to learn and you're going to grow and it's going to be good. Second question, what in the next week, in the conversations that I'm anticipating at work or at school or wherever it may be, in those conversations, what do I need to trust God for? When you ask that question, you may have a dollar amount. You may have a a job that you're trusting God for, either that you'll get or that you'll keep. Maybe a relationship. Uh, Whatever it may be, what do you need to trust God for? The question we need to end on this morning is, will you? Will you trust God? Because if you do, then everything that comes out of you will start to be truthful, healing. You will be a source of nourishment to the people around you. If you don't trust God, we know what the results are. We're all living with the results of not trusting God. That's a done deal. But if we do trust God, there is another future that we will enjoy in its fruit because of what we say out of our faithfulness. There are a couple of questions here that I will um, address here. Thank you. Lies often have a long shelf life. Explain. Uh, Depends on your definition of of long. Um, Who's the father of lies? Satan. He's had a fairly long life. Um, he's, He's going on... Uh, well, I guess that depends upon when you date the creation, but uh, nevertheless, the old liar has been around a long, long time. And there are lots of plot twists that trace back to him. And the lies that he tells keep coming back. 
Um, so one of the part of the groaning of the godly in the situations that we face is this one again. Haven't we already seen this movie? Are we really going to go back over this territory again? Are people going to fall for this lie again? Yes, they will. Um, the question is, what's the end of the movie? We know what the end of the movie is for him. And when we get there, when we see the kingdom of God founded on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, when we see the growth and outworking of that kingdom in truth and in reality, the career of the old liar is going to seem pretty short because eternity is a long, long time to enjoy God and his truth. So, yes, in, in the outworking of the plot, some lies do last a long time. But that's not the scale that we're operating on. We are called to operate on the scale of God's eternal plan for his kingdom. And um, so that is one way uh, to address that. Um, sometimes perceptions are right and can help avoid disaster. Should I still hold it in? Very good question. Um, at, there are times when you just say, my gut's telling me this. I think this is going on. I think this is happening. I can't prove it. I don't, you know, I can't take it to the lab and come back with a result. But this is what I think. In that case, what you need to, to say is, this is what I think. I can't prove it, but this is what my gut is telling me. Tell me I'm wrong. Show me I'm wrong. Um, there, that is perfectly truthful, and I, I just want to reiterate what I said a few minutes ago. I have no problem with somebody coming to me and saying very painful things about their perceptions. It's when they start saying those painful things as if there is no other reality but what's going on inside their head. I'll have that conversation for a long time. I'll, we'll, we'll talk about perceptions and get to the bottom of them and find that bedrock. I'm, I'm committed to that. It, so uh, I think if you have that, uh, that sense, I, I can't prove it, but this is what I think, then say, this is what I think. That's a true statement. Um, I must choose between reactive arrogance and unpleasant wickedness what er, un, well, wickedness is unpleasant, uh, unrepentant wickedness. I read that wrong. Uh, what areas should I consider most important in deciding which way to lean? Mm. Oh, oh, I get it. I get it. This is about the election. Well, um, <laughs> here's the problem we can't pass 
I mean, that's, that's the whole problem. We've got reactive arrogance and unrepented wickedness. And um, those are the two main choices. Here's the way I handle these things um, in my own thinking. I never make a decision based on what I am afraid is going to happen. Um, there is a tremendous amount of argumentation on both sides of the election, um, Republican and Democrat, based on fear of what happens if the other person gets in. And uh, by the way, we've got we've got everybody here. We've got Republicans and Democrats, so there's don't make any assumptions. Uh, yeah, and it, it's a good thing, and we're all unhappy. Um, so when I look at that and I, I see someone saying, you've got to sign on this, otherwise this will happen. My answer is automatic. I do not accept that frame. Because if these terrible things do happen, then my job as a Christian is to trust God. Um, and the fact is... Um, we are not a fundamentally different country because of this election. This election is happening because of the country that we are. And so we've got to trust God anyway. So the, whether, whichever way you vote, I don't think you're going to lose your testimony or your integrity uh, by voting either way. I think that's a tremendously a false frame. Um, I, I do know that the evangelical establishment today is fear-mongering on all of these issues. And um, I am choosing not to listen to it, nor to pass it on. The fact is, the things that we are trying to prevent right now are things that have already happened in our country. And uh, what we need is to trust God in the midst of all of those realities. This is the country we are living in, and it is profoundly wicked uh, on every side. And our primary job is not to be complicit in that and not to make up rationales for what we do that uh, make us complicit in it couple of other uh, questions here. Um, oh, a wonderful quotation here, uh, and how appropriate. Tomorrow is, uh, to be sure, Halloween, but October 31st is a much more important day. It's Reformation Day tomorrow. Yeah. So... That's a good day. Um, here is a quotation by text from uh, the man God used to bring about the Reformation. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. 
the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us wisdom. Settle our hearts upon you. Increase our faith. Sharpen our focus. Soften our attitudes. And as we do this, we know that the aroma of the, of the, the work of grace will please you and we will give you all the glory as we do right now. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray and all God's people say, Amen. Amen.